Hey everybody, my name is Jeff Lambert, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. So, for the next 20 to 30 minutes, we're going to be talking about a topic that I'm excited to get into. Uh, there was a lot of research that went into this one, and I found out a lot more than I thought I would on the topic. So I'm thinking of splitting this into two, maybe even three parts. Let me know what you think after we go through this, if you'd like to hear more. But before we get into the story for today, I do have some special thanks that I want to give. Um, we've had some people participating more and more on the social media posts. We've been doing a Tuesday trivia question now, I think, every week for the past month. Uh, the most recent one was a question that asked who the first player to pitch a ball over 100 miles was. And uh, John M. on Facebook and Instagram correctly guessed Nolan Ryan. And we had some good back and forth with some other people who listened to the show about Bob Feller and his uh, supposed 100-mile-plus fastball as well. Um, it's an interesting topic to get into, and I think I might uh, do an episode just on that. So we'll see what happens. But uh, overall, John, thank you for participating in that and for everybody else that uh, left comments on some of those questions that we've been posting. And if you haven't uh, taken the opportunity to follow us on social media, I encourage you to do so. We uh, post something different every day and try to give uh, some interesting tidbits, whether it's trivia or did you knows, uh, player profiles and quotes. So um, I think it's worth five seconds of your time as you scroll through your feed. So check it out when you get the chance. It's uh, at Rounders Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, however you decide to get your Russian bot sponsored news. So, uh, also, before we get into this, uh, I'm really excited about the growth of the podcast, and I just want to share with the people that listen, we hit a 1,000 listens uh, for the month of January, which is really exciting to me because if you go back to October, I think I had a total of 50 for the entire series, and we had a 1,000 in one month, and the past four episodes have all gotten over 100 listens. So the growth is is happening, and I'm really grateful for everybody that takes you know, 20 to 30 minutes of their day to tune into an episode. So um, here's to better and bigger things as we go forward. So with that, let's go ahead and jump into our main topic. Fans behaving badly. For today's topic, I decided to delve a little bit into baseball's fans and some of the more interesting interactions that have happened at our ballparks over the years. And there were so many stories that I came across about fans that were disrupting baseball games in different ways, and some were funny, some were shocking, some were just downright disturbing. And I think overall, as I went through and researched this topic, I appreciated baseball for the power it can have to bring people together in tribes. And that certainly has positive effects, but it also has negative effects too. And those are usually found when people become hostile to those who are in these other tribes. And, you know, healthy competition is a good thing. Pride in your city is a good thing. But there were a lot of disturbing stories that I came across of things that happened, you know, even outside of games, uh, after games, at bars or uh, conflicts that happened in public places between fans for wearing a hat or making a comment. And it's just, you know, it, it makes you sad to see that people can take their uh, love of something and twist it so so differently from where it started. So 
I decided for this episode that I was going to focus on stories of fans that cause disruptions within official baseball games, official MLB games. And I decided to stay away from those interactions where I was talking about where there were um, fans or players uh, in altercations that happened outside of games. So I'm going to go through these in chronological order. And we're going to start off back in 1901. There was a game between the Orioles and the Tigers. And this game took place in Baltimore. So it was the bottom of the fourth inning. And the Tigers were leading by a score of 7-4. to four. The leadoff batter for Baltimore was called out at first base on a close call. Now, Orioles players were not happy about this call, so they surrounded and began arguing with the umpire who made their call. And that eventually led to a bench-clearing brawl. <laughs> now... So the players aren't happy. Uh, they start fighting each other. The umpire's involved. The fans decided to get involved too. So they decided to invade the field and started getting into the, the fight with the players and the umpires who were desperately trying to affect them, uh, protect themselves. So it got so bad that fans, in addition to invading the field and getting in altercations with the players, they decided, you know what? At this point, we're not going to get our money back for the game. So let's do something about that. So they decided to go over and storm the box office so they could get refunds for their tickets, which worked. Now, the umpire who made the original call was assaulted by fans as he escaped. He was able to get to the groundskeeper's office where he locked himself in, and he stayed there for over an hour before the crowd thinned out and he was able to leave peacefully. Now, out of this whole event that occurred, there was only one fan that was arrested, and he was escorted off the field by police. He was fined $100. Keep in mind, this is 1901, so that's a lot of money. He was fined $100 for disorderly conduct, and the game was ruled a forfeit in favor of the Tigers. So that's the first event we have where you have fans actively uh, getting on the field and causing that level of a disruption. Uh, at least the one that was the, that was to that scale to this point, uh, recorded in such a way. So that's event number one. Let's take a look at our second event, which occurred in 1940. And it was a game that featured the Brooklyn Dodgers at Ebbets Field. Now, this story was recounted by a judge named Samuel Lebowitz. And he told this this recounting of something that he remembered at his old age in 1978. So he was telling the story 38 years after it happened. Now, he remembered being at this game in 1940. And he remembered that there was a fan that jumped onto the field after a bad call by an umpire. Now, this fan ran over to the home plate umpire, knocked him over, and started punching him repeatedly. Now, the umpire, who was much taller and heavier than the fan after the game refused to press charges, which is just, you know, confusing at first glance because this fan came onto the field, knocked him over, hit him repeatedly, and basically embarrassed him in front of everybody in the stadium, not to mention committed an act of violence against an umpire. But the umpire refused to press charges. Well, it came out shortly after that the umpire was actually a professional boxer uh, on the side, and he didn't want his reputation to be uh, besmirched by the event. But that was too little too late, because every newspaper in the country ran that story on the front page. 
So there was this embarrassing picture of this fan, this smaller fan, standing over this umpire, uh, just wailing on him. That was on all of these front pages. So it was embarrassing. Uh, the umpire certainly uh, didn't save face from it. So that that's that story. So years later, that same fan who punched out the umpire is in court for a completely separate reason. And he's standing in front of Judge Lebowitz. And the judge remembers his face, you know, from the game and the photos that ran in the newspaper. But um, he can't quite place it yet. So he asked the man if he's a baseball fan. And the man replied, yeah, I am. So then the judge asked the man if he was a Dodgers fan. And the man said, oh, yeah, I'm one of the best. So then the judge said, quote, hey, you're the fellow who jumped the umpire that day. I thought I recognized you, end quote. That was me, said the man. And Judge Lebowitz said he was beaming, reliving his hour of glory. So the judge said, quote, to the, to the man, quote, I'm a Dodger fan myself, and I know what the umpires can do to us. But to jump out on the field and slug one of them? Are you really as hot a fan as that? Did that decision, I forgot what it was, did it make you lose your head altogether, end quote? The man responded, quote, I'm a good fan. I can get excited. And I was sore that day. I was sore as hell. It was a lousy decision and it burned me up. But, to tell you the truth, judge, I had a partner working in the stands that day, end quote. So, <laughs> this fan, uh, admittedly to a judge, which is, I guess, is surprising in itself, um, you know, recounted that it wasn't necessarily because of the fact that he was upset about the call, although it factored into it. This guy was trying to create a diversion so his buddy in the stands could lift more wallets and fish some money out of more purses. So it was a two-man game, and one man's job was to create that, that uh, event that took everybody's eyes away from the second man. And it seemed to have worked. So that's story number two. So, let's go to our third story, and we have to fast forward to 1961. The New York Yankees are playing the Cleveland Indians, and this game, this event, takes place at Yankee Stadium. So the game is tied, and it's the bottom of the seventh. Indians pitcher Bobby Locke is on the mound, and he begins the inning by walking Yankee legend, and baseball legend in general, Mickey Mantle. So Mantle takes first base. At that point, two Yankees fans decided to jump out of the outfield bleachers, and they began sprinting towards Indian center fielder Jimmy Pearsall. Now, Pearsall, when he was interviewed about the uh, event after the game, stated, quote, I knew I was in trouble right away. They were yelling, we'll get you, you nut, end quote. So with their fists cocked, both fans attempt to punch out Jimmy Pearsall, but Pearsall was ready. He hit one of the attackers, gave him a nice left hook right to the eye, and he landed another right on the other attacker's head. So both guys are down. Uh, going back to Pearsall, he said, quote, I hit that first guy good. My dad would have been proud of me. I finally won one, end quote. And, and just to give a little perspective on that, Jimmy Pearsall's father had actually passed away the previous week, so it was still very fresh in his memory. But that wasn't the end of the story. 
One of those fans that Pearsall had put on their back started to get up. He wasn't done yet. So Mickey Mantle, who again is on the opposite team, standing on first base, decides to start sprinting towards the outfielder. And his goal is to help Jimmy Pearsall. Uh, the Indian second baseman, Johnny Temple, also saw what was happening, and he began to sprint out to help take that fan down. Now, Mantle and Temple were both successful in subduing that fan, and the police arrived shortly after, and they took both those fans into custody. Pearsall was obviously grateful that his rival, Mickey Mantle, decided to step in and help him like that. And he said in that later interview, quote, Mantle really showed me something. He could have been hurt, you know. But he wasn't worrying about his home runs then. Did you see how my teammates rushed out to? I found out who my friends are. End quote. Reporters talked to Mickey Mantle after the game, too, to see what was going through his head when that happened. And Mantle responded by saying, quote, Sure, I was going out to help him. Those people have no business out there. End quote. So three stories up, three stories down, folks. I have a couple more that I think you'll enjoy, but let's take a quick break for the seventh inning stretch. If you're enjoying the episode, please, please take a moment to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Rounders Podcast. That's one word, Rounders Podcast. Every day, you're going to get photos, quotes, trivia, and other interesting stories from baseball's rich past right in your feed. And if you want to support me financially, you can do that through a service called Anchor. Anchor has a secure payment option through Stripe, a trusted name in online payments. So you can send me a donation safely and easily simply by going to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. If you have just $5 a month, you can help me pay some bills and devote more time to cranking out more episodes for you to enjoy. Each episode takes approximately 5 to 7 hours of research, recording, and editing, so your support does help me keep this show going. People like donors Daniel S. and John A., they both just contributed $5 a month. Guys, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. And with theirs and other people's donations, I'm currently saving up to buy a mobile-compatible microphone so that I can record while I'm traveling. So that's where your current donations are going to help me most. Again, just go to anchor.fm forward slash rounders. A link is available in the show notes. That's all for now. Let's get back to the show. And welcome back, everybody. So let's go to our fourth event that I have researched meticulously for you to enjoy. The year is 1971. There is a game between the Washington Senators and the New York Yankees. And the game takes place at Robert F. Kennedy Stadium in D.C. This was the last game of the 1971 season. Not only was it the last game of the 1971 season, it was the last game uh, ever for the Washington Senators. See, the, the team had been sold. They were moving to Arlington, Texas, 
and they would eventually become the Texas Rangers. Now, I have to insert this. DC fans, I had no idea your pain. I am sorry. There were two Washington Senators teams that were relocated in the span of a decade. The first one went to Minnesota, and they eventually became the Twins. And the second one, again, a decade later, was shipped off to Texas. So there was a lot of uh, heartbreak happening here when the second team was announced that they were going to be leaving. So I guess in a like a bittersweet moment, uh, 14,460 fans ended up going to the park to see the game and I guess to say goodbye to their team. Now, the New York Times ran an article after the game, and I think they summed up uh, the mood very well. They said, quote, The fans present were a combination of mourning for their departed team and a mass loathing for the team owner, Bob Short. End quote. Now, there were banners hung all around the stadium that said things like, Short stinks and worse things that I can't necessarily say because I don't want to mark this as explicit, this episode, so we'll just leave it at that. But um, there were also dolls that fans brought into the stadium that were turned into these Bob Short effigies. So the mood wasn't kind towards this owner. I, I get it. I understand why. But there was already kind of this underlying just hatred for what was going to happen at the end of this game, which was the end of the Washington Senators. So fans were just beyond mad at the team owner. And uh, they kind of saw this coming. I mean, they went to the ballpark for a reason. It wasn't to uh, give a nice send-off. So the fans also had a little bit of an inkling that this was going to happen before it was announced because Short had actually had the Washington Senators go play a couple exhibition games down in Arlington, Texas, before he actually announced the sale. So it was kind of salt in the wound there. So let's get to the actual game. Uh, the Senators, they rallied from being down 5-1, to one, and they took a two-run lead into the top of the ninth inning. Now, at that point, you know, it's, it's getting to the end of the game. Players especially who were interviewed after the game said they could feel like something bad was probably going to happen. This began with a guy named Joe Grizenda. He was the, the closer, the closing pitcher for the Senators, and he was the one that took the mound in the ninth inning. And he said after the game that he felt like the fans were going to storm the field at some point. Ted Williams, who was the manager of the Senators during this time, he actually took out his star player, Frank Howard. He took him out in the sixth inning, way before the ninth. And he told Howard, quote, you'd better get out of here. It's going to be a wild house, end quote. Now, before going back to Joe Grizenda, the closing pitcher for the Senators, before he took the field for the ninth inning, Ted Williams pulled him aside, his manager, and said that if he got two outs, you know, before that third out, before he pitched to that final batter, just to kill some time on the mound, to give time for the players and the staff who were in the bullpen to get out of there and go into the dugout before things got crazy. So there was there was a feeling that something was going to happen. So... Sure enough, uh, you know, the ninth inning progresses. There's two outs on the board. Uh, Grizenda is just waiting for something to happen. The the bullpens start to clear out, you know, and the players are getting out of there. The fans are just getting more and more rowdy. He looks over at the on-deck circle, and he's just waiting there impatiently. 
And the Yankees batter who's due up next, his name's Horace Clark. He's just standing there. So Grisenda yells to him and he says, come on, let's go. And Clark responded by just turning around, looking at the crowd, and he walked back to the dugout. So the New York Times article that I mentioned before, they, uh, they also described the mood at this point with two outs and uh, the end of the game in sight. They said, quote, first it was a few, then it was thousands pouring out. And by few and thousands, they're referring to the fans. Fans started jumping over the bleachers onto the field and just going nuts, knowing that this last out means that's it for their team. Gene Michel, the Yankees shortstop at the time who was watching from the dugout, stated, quote, it scared you. They were flying over everything, end quote. Let's go back to Gazenda, the Senator's closer. He's still on the mound. He sees fans pouring over the stands onto the field. So he decides, smart man, to get back to the dugout. So he said as he was walking towards the dugout, there was a wild-haired man who approached him as he was trying to get off the field. Now he said, quote, I kept watching him. I thought I might hit him with the ball, but then he just touched me. He touched me in the chest, end quote. Now, like Grisenda, all of the players that were still on the field were getting into the dugout as quickly as they could. They barricaded themselves down in the tunnel, both teams, and that's just when everything went nuts. So the fans went to work on the stadium, obviously upset with the not so much the players, but the, the franchise and Bob Shorts, and they just did a number on the field. They ripped up all the bases to take them home for souvenirs. Uh, someone even took the pitching rubber. They kicked the sod of the mound down to level with the rest of the grass. They tore up chunks of the outfield grass, I guess for souvenirs. Uh, some fans even climbed the scoreboard and they took light bulbs out and either threw them on the ground to break them or they took them home as souvenirs. So these fans just trashed the stadium. It was, it was just almost beyond repair when they were done. The fans were making a final statement, I think, you know, that they were done with their team owner. They were done with losing that their second team in a decade. They were just done with being taken for granted. So as they're destroying the field, what are the players doing? They're barricaded in the dugouts. And the story goes that at least for the senators, there was a case of beer that was in the dugout in the tunnel. And the players partook of the beer as they waited for something to happen. And they just kind of hung out. Now, the umpires, about an hour later, ended up calling the game an official forfeit. And with that, the players were able to sneak out to the back parking lot. Some signed some autographs for some peaceful fans that were waiting back there. And they just got on the bus and left. Now, the Yankees, as, as I mentioned, because of the forfeit, they ended up winning the game. And whenever a forfeit's called, the official score is 9 to nothing. So the Yankees were officially awarded a 9-0 decision because of the forfeit. So, the Senators lost their final game in Washington, even though they were winning the game with one out to go. Now, there was another article that was written the day after the game by Washington Post journalist Shirley Povich. And she said, I think, which is one of the most powerful statements I came across in looking into this game, she said, quote, 
For every mourner who made it to the ballpark, there were multiple empty seats to testify that 30,000 other fans had averted their eyes from the scene, shunning it either in indifference to the whole business or in reluctance to give chortling Bob Short one last handout at the highest admission prices in the league, end quote. So that ended the second sad stint of the Washington Senators. And that brings us to one of the most interesting stories I think I've ever uh, researched for this podcast. I knew a little bit about it, but I had never done a deep dive into it. Uh, this was a game that occurred in 1974. It was between the Cleveland Indians and the Texas Rangers, and it happened at Cleveland Stadium. Now, for my baseball historians or just fans from Cleveland and Texas, you already know where this is going. I am going to talk about the game that is known in infamy as Ten Cent Beer Night. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, buckle up. This is going to be an interesting one. So, to start the story, you can't start it that night. You have to go back about a week ago before that game happened. Now, a week before, the Indians and the Rangers were playing a game in Texas, and there was uh, some bad calls that were made, and basically what happened was there was a bench-clearing brawl where the Indians and the Rangers players just, you know, went at it. Now, Indians fans especially were still on edge over that incident because the it didn't end well for, for the Indians in that game. And uh, so here we are a week later. You've got Indian fans who are already upset about what happened. The players obviously don't like each other. And uh, it just so happened that the night that the Rangers came to town was Ten Cent Beer Night. Now, the idea was was for Cleveland to just get more fans in the stadium. So Ten Cent Beer Night was, uh, in, it was a promotion where you could go to the park and you could get a 12-ounce cup of beer for just one dime. Now, just to give you an idea of what a savings that was, a regularly priced beer in 1974 was 65 cents. So, you know, that's a pretty good discount. Now, during this time, you also have to take a look at what the rules were for buying beer. So, for this game in particular, there was a limit of six beers per purchase, which is a lot for one person. But that's not even the kicker. The kicker was, there was no limit on the total amount of times you could come back. So six at a time, okay. But you could go back as many times and get six at a time as many times as you wanted. So Cleveland's running this promotion, and we look at it in hindsight, and we say, wow, that was a really stupid idea. That's a lot of alcohol into the fans. But this wasn't the first time that Cleveland had done a discount beer night. They had done this years before without any incidents. They even had what was known as a nickel beer day back in 1971. It wasn't so much the, well, it was the alcohol, but it was also the fact that you had two teams that had gotten into a physical altercation just a week ago. And it's like the perfect storm where they're coming to town and everyone's going to get inebriated really quickly. And then on top of that, that game that happened the week before, after the game, there was a reporter who went up to Rangers manager Billy Martin and asked him the question, quote, are you going to bring your armor to Cleveland next week? end quote. And Martin being the, the show promoter, I guess he was, responded, quote, nah, they don't have enough fans for us to worry about, end quote. So, 
there's some fuel on the fire. So in that week leading up to this game, to 10 cent beer night, you had uh, Cleveland sports radio and Cleveland publications just running everything they could to fire up the fan base and just villainize the Rangers. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, the largest newspaper in the city, ran a cartoon the day of the game in the sports section showing Chief Wahoo holding boxing gloves saying, be ready for anything. So that's the mood going into this game. So 25,134 fans show up to the game. And that's twice the number that Cleveland was expecting. Because remember, team's not doing so great this year. They're trying to get people to come in. And based on what the estimates were for previous uh, discount beer nights, they expected half that amount. So you got 25,000 fans. Here we go. So the game didn't get off to a great start. The Rangers very quickly took a 5-1 to lead. And that got the fans a little less interested in the game and a little more interested on the 10-cent beers. So people are just chugging, chugging, chugging in the stands. And the game starts to get more and more unruly as time goes on. The Rangers' starting pitcher was hit by a comeback line drive right in the stomach and ended up dropping to the ground. And in response, Cleveland fans started chanting, Hit him again, hit him again, harder, harder. So that's, that's the beginning of fan interaction here as the game quickly descends. Shortly after, a woman jumped onto the field, ran to the Indians on deck circle, and flashed her breasts for the entire crowd to see. Shortly after that, a man jumps onto the field and sprints fully naked over to second base. Shortly after that, a father-son pair decided to run into the outfield and mooned all of the fans in the bleachers. So you're, you're getting an idea of how this game is quickly just getting worse. And as time goes on, more and more fans are running out onto the field and causing problems. Indians player Mike Hargrove, who, yes, that's the same guy who later on was at the helm of several successful Indians teams, but he was a player at the time, he just he recounted what had occurred after that game, and he said that during the entire game, people were throwing hot dogs at him, and they were spitting on him, and he nearly got hit by an empty gallon jug of Thunderbird. Now, th this is the mood as we go into later in the game. And the Rangers decided to argue a call where an Indians player was called out on a close play at third base. Now, the Cleveland fans were already upset. They responded to this uh, questioning of the call by throwing objects onto the field. And as that was happening, one fan decided to light firecrackers and throw it into the Rangers' bullpen. So, that brings us to the bottom of the ninth. Now, the Indians had tied the game at five, actually. And fans were very excited about this. But they were also very, very drunk by this time. So things were not going well. We've already talked about this. They're about to go just from bad to worse. And it all started with a 19-year-old fan named Terry Yurkic. So Terry decides to run onto the field. We're in the bottom of the ninth. And he tries to steal the cap off of Rangers outfielder Jeff Burrow's head. Now, Burroughs obviously wasn't happy about this, so he decides to step forward and confront that fan who tried to steal his hat. 
but as he took a step forward, he ended up slipping and falling a little bit more forward than he had originally intended. And from the dugout, the Rangers, especially manager Billy Martin, thought that his player was being attacked. So he decides to come out of the dugout and he starts walking towards the outfield. And it wasn't just him. The rest of the Rangers team that was in the dugout, at least most of them, followed their manager out onto the field. And some of them decided to bring some bats with them in their hand. So Cleveland fans, who already hated the Rangers and already hated Martin especially, they came prepared. They see these Rangers players marching towards their fan out in the outfield, so they start jumping onto the field as well. And they came prepared. Hundreds of them. Some had knives. Some had chains. Some even tore the backs off of their stadium chairs to use as makeshift weapons. They surrounded the Rangers team in the middle of the field, while the fans who were still in the stands started pelting those same players with bottles. Now, at this point, Cleveland manager Ken Aspromonte, he was seriously concerned for the lives of those Rangers players and their manager. So he orders his players the Indians players in the dugout, to get out on the field and help their counterparts, and he told them to grab some bats as well. So you have both teams of players out there holding bats, and you have hundreds of fans armed with deadly weapons on the field. And from that point, just all hell ensues. So fans and players from both teams start fighting each other with weapons and with fists. Cleveland relief pitcher Tom Higgledorf ended up getting hit in the head from a flying steel folding chair. Mike Hargrove, who we talked about a little bit ago, said and, and, and also documented that he had to fight his way back to his own dugout, and he got in several fist fights along the way. So both teams somehow managed to get back to their dugouts, and they barricaded themselves in, and those players were protecting one another from these fans who were just drunk and angry and, well, weaponed up. So they hunkered down, they wait for help. In the meantime, fans just went nuts on the stadium. They stole all the bases. They threw rocks. They threw cups, bottles, radial batteries. Anything that wasn't bolted down, they started chucking around the field. Now, the head umpire, Nestor Chilek, and I feel bad for this guy, decided to end up calling a forfeit, obviously. Uh, during the event where he was trying to figure out what to do when this all just just went awry he actually suffered a cut to the head from a flying stadium seat and he got a cut to the hand from a flying rock he was interviewed after the game and he called the fans uncontrollable beasts and stated that he'd never seen anything like what had happened except in a zoo now during the riot where the fans were just out on the field the announcers for the Cleveland Indians, they continued to call the riot events live on the radio. So if you were sitting at home, you could hear exactly what the announcers were seeing. That happened for a little while, and then the Cleveland police eventually had to show up and restore order. So after the game, huge debacle, everybody wants to blame someone else for what happened. The Indians general manager, a guy named Phil Segi, 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 Segi. If, you're, if I have a Cleveland fan, let me know if I'm saying that right. Uh, he blamed the umpire for losing control of the game. 
It's all your fault. You lost control of the game. That's why the fans went nuts. The Sporting News decided to run an article that Seggy was responsible, obviously, for hosting a 10-cent beer night for that particular game. So blame is being thrown every which way. The American League president ended up stepping in, and he did make a comment on the situation, and he said, quote, there was no question that beer played a part in the riot, end quote. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. So that was the extent of what occurred. Outside of the forfeit, no other action was taken. In fact, Cleveland held another 10-cent beer night two weeks later, and 41,848 fans showed up for that. But there was, there was one change to the rule. They limited those beers to two cups per person. So I guess they learned a little bit from their mistakes. And with that, folks, I am going to have to stop. I have some other great stories that I want to share with you on this topic, and I really think I'm going to do a part two. Uh, so stay tuned for that. If you'd like to hear more on this topic, let me know. Maybe I'll dive in and do a part three. I'm only at the 1970s, and I didn't even get to Disco Demolition Night. So if you're interested in hearing a little bit about that episode, you can go to episode 11, which is about Bill Veck. And I do talk about that briefly, but I think I'm going to do more of a, a, a comprehensive recap of that in another episode. But for now, that's all for tonight. So... Thanks for listening. I appreciate your support. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>